Hi, everybody. Today on Mr. Fitz, we have an insightful conversation with Fox Business financial analyst and wealth advisor, Luke Lloyd. Luke covers everything from investing in crypto, market volatility, to jobs and geopolitical turmoil, and answers questions like, when should you have a financial advisor? Now, quick reminder, this is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or tax advice. You should always speak with a professional about your specific set of circumstances. Now, let's jump into our conversation with Luke Lloyd. Hey, welcome everybody to Mr. Fitz podcast. We are glad that you're here today again with us. And we have the honor, uh, John and I do, to be able to spend some time and interview Luke Lloyd uh, from Strategic Wealth Partners in Cleveland, Ohio. You may know him from being on uh, Fox Business as a contributor and uh, talking about stocks and keeping you and I and our 401ks afloat. So uh, anyway, welcome, Luke. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself getting started here. You're you're young, so like it, when most people think strategic, you know, wealth, and right? Office, they think of someone who's in their 40s or 50s, and yet you really broke into this at an early age. And I did walk us through that story a little bit. Yeah, well, first off, you know, thanks for having me on the podcast. You know, I, I I've said it before on Fox, and I I, I know we're very engaging on Twitter. Uh, with each other. Um, you know, I tell it how it is and I, I don't beat around the bush. I don't, you know, I don't have time to, to have BS commentary. I just, that's how I've always approached things my entire life. And that's kind of the mentality I had with, you know, money and the power of how money flows throughout the economy. All you hear in today's world, and even like my entire life, really, it's always been about politics, how all these crazy different things are going to impact people. But if you look to history, things haven't really changed that much. Like for, people have changed their maybe views or maybe technology has changed just a bit, but the exact us being people and how we interact with money, how capital you know flows throughout the economy, how it creates jobs, how it creates wealth, hasn't really changed depending on what the restrictions are in the government, right? So I was always very fascinated about how money works and uh, money in general. And most people, th- you know, when I say that, most people are like, you know, you've always been you know, obsessed with money. Does that mean you, you, that's all you care about is making money? No, that is not what I'm saying. I've always been very fascinated with entrepreneurs, the Elon Musk of the world, how they're able to take $10 billion, put that $10 billion somewhere else and grow that $10 billion to $100 billion and create jobs wealth along the way. That's been fascinating. So I started really studying that at a very young age. I remember uh, late middle school, early high school, I had a very good teacher who was actually a stockbroker uh, for his day job. And he came in, in the mornings at 8 a.m. Um, he uh, would come in, teach a one class, 8 to 9, 9 a.m., would go to his real job being a stockbroker. Um, and he taught me just a lot about the power of compounding money, um, how you can use money to uh, not just create money for yourself, but create money for other people. So I started, I traded my first stock, I think at 13 years old. So I started very young. I wish I was, uh, I, would, I don't want to say I was like Warren Buffett when he was buying stocks at 13 years old. I'm probably not going to be a billionaire, but uh, that being said, I've always been fascinated with it. And that's what got me into it. Yeah, that's that's great that a teacher uh, was kind of an impetus in fueling that for you. John and I were talking on on our first podcast about 
just the influence of certain teachers in our lives and how it kind of puts you in, in, in a weird way. It, it helps to push you where you are today so many years later. So that's, that's pretty cool. But you, you said started trading your first stock at, at 13. Yeah. How did you get access to that? Um, and to be able to do that is something that your, your parents facilitated or how'd that go? I had a custodial account. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so the only way to legally do that uh, is either through uh, or through a custodial account. I guess you could illegally do it through an account you open underneath your parents' name or something like that. I've seen people do that, but no, I was a custodial account. I remember going up to my father and saying, "Hey, Dad, like I'm kind of you know very interested in in stocks and the markets and and money in general. Uh, can you sign off on this account? You be you know the the main you know parental whatever uh, person on the account. I'll be the custodial custodial kid on the account, basically, right?" Uh, it was a mutual fund. It was actually a technology mutual fund. And I remember I kept it for three years um, and I sold it for like a 50, 60% gain. So it was like my first real experience about, you know, buying my first initial stock, selling it, making money. Um, I started then, you know, as I approached college, um, I started really getting heavy in the technical fundamental side of things, analyzing charts. I'm a math, you know, behind the scenes, I'm a big math guy. I love Fibonacci. Um, I'm a big nerd, basically. So I started really studying the impact of um, algorithms and technology has on the financial markets. I actually try to start my own algorithmic trading firm, uh, developing algorithms for the market. So that was really cool experience because it showed me kind of that technical side of it, um, of trading. Um, but it, it's, everyone's got a different story. And like you said, mentors are key. Like you hit the nail on the head there when you said that having a teacher there at the beginning was, was really prominent in getting me into this industry. Everyone, no matter if you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, who doesn't matter what age, you should always have somebody there that you kind of look up to that's there to kind of guide you. And that's kind of how I approach, you know, my firm now with Mark, you know, Mark Tepper, uh, you know, go on CNBC, Fox Business, Fox News four times a week. Um, I view him as, as my mentor. Like he's been a great mentor to me, teaching me the ways of how to grow a business, especially in this space. Yeah. And, and this space has been pretty much the craziest that has been in history over the past three or four years. Like you have, you have what happened with COVID, you have the huge drop, and then pretty much you could make a spitball at the wall and hammer it uh, for the next eight to 10 months. And then it was almost like one day the faucet turned off and nobody knew what to do because everybody was investing for the first time. And now you get to this point where we're at this kind of rally, rallying point, but then you compare it to what happened in 2008 and you're like, wow, we've got a really far way to go before we get there. So that kind of leads me to the next question. If you are an 18 to 25 year old, uh, 25 to 40 year old or 41 to 60 year old, your strategy is going to be completely different. But in the in the environment we're in right now. What advice would you give to a new investor at each of those groups? That's that's the questions that I get all the time. Hey, uh, what do you what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm not the guy to ask, but I know who to ask. Well, and that's a great question. And what I will say is, I actually I believe the strategy doesn't change. Um, maybe the allocation changes, like what you're invested in, like stocks and bonds, alternatives. That allocation is going to change. But as I kind of alluded to at the beginning with people and like how we approach, how money flows throughout the economy, how money um, changes lives, wealth built, um, that hasn't really changed much. And that's strategy throughout your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. There's a reason why we have billionaires out there. There's a reason why we have business owners out there. They all understand the basic strategy behind it. And it's basically the same throughout. It's consistency and discipline. 
Those two things are all you need to be a good business owner to generate wealth or to be a good investor, a good trader. Those are the two main ones that you need to have. If you can master those two, then you're able to have a strategy. Most people don't have a strategy in the first place. Um, For example, knowing what you're going to buy and sell at certain levels, what stocks you're going to buy and sell at certain levels, having those price points as simple as having a point you're going to get out at, having a point at, you know, we're going to get out at, um, uh, as a profit or get out at, at a loss, like having those simple things, that's part of a strategy. That's discipline, right? And then consistency, being able just to save money, being able to budget, you know, middle-class America is hurting very bad right now. Having that budget and having that consistency and discipline to understand where your money's going, what's coming in, what's going out. That's so important in this kind of environment. And those people that have consistency and discipline right now are going to come out very much ahead over the next five years compared to most people that don't have consistency and discipline. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. And what you said, you touched on middle America there. Um, My question there is, is how have, in your opinion, the day-to-day choices over the past year and a half in middle America, how has that affected long-term retirement for middle America? It's impacted it greatly. I, I think we talked about this, uh, Varric, uh, maybe a couple months ago. I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe, I don't know if the podcast is supposed to know this, you're writing a book, but I think we <laughs> talked about it on the book you're writing uh, about how psychology of people has completely changed um, since the pandemic. Um, it's pandemic has had physical effects for all of us, you know, being locked up. People have gained weight, you know, but the big part of it has been mental. (laughs) It's been a huge mental impact on not only how we approach life. There's some good and bad. There's bad. There's good parts to it, too. Like, I think families more at the forefront now compared to where it was. People are um, interacting with family more, understanding how important it is to have that family and who's important in your life. I think there's some benefits. But the bad part from a Budgeting from a investing standpoint, I think a lot of people um, aren't going to be able to retire. You know, if, if if the pandemic didn't happen, they probably were going to be able to retire. A lot of people aren't going to be able to retire. That's maybe in their twenties or thirties right now because everyone's got the mentality of going out and spending money, having fun. Like that's what the pandemic has done to a lot of us. Like we were locked up for so long and you know, a year, basically a lot of us were locked up a year, depends on you know which state you were in, but that has a psychological impact on your spending habits, how you approach life. A lot of people have, you know, I'm, a, you know, I'm young. I can say this. A lot of people have YOLO mentalities right now. YOLO, you only live once, right? So um, that's what the pandemic has done. So a lot of people aren't saving money and actually, you know, it's not necessarily uh, that they don't want to save money. Sometimes it's that they can't because of the impact of inflation has all the trillions of dollars reprinted. So you have kind of both sides hitting you right now. You have the side of your psychological component. That's not really in your favor for budgeting and, and uh, saving money. And then you have the actual component of our government getting involved and they screw everything up every time they do get involved. Um, and we're seeing that impact too. So you have a uh, double whammy essentially going on right now. Yeah. So actually that touches on something, John, you were asking before we started, you were talking to me a little bit about the fed and kind of your, what you wanted to talk to Luke about on. Right. Uh, and I'm, there was so much, so much that you just said, Luke to unpack. I mean, we could probably spend another hour on the statement you just made. Um, but specifically what's happening uh, with the fed funds rate, where do you think it should be? Are we going in the right direction? Are we not? Where are we going to be, you know, Q4? So I wish, uh, 
you know, the Federal Reserve wouldn't have waited so dang long to to do what they're doing now because we're they're in a such a tough spot and they did it to themselves. They shot themselves in the foot. Um, I, I, we should have been hiking a year ago. I think you know if you, you can look back at some of the things I was saying back in early 2021 about how we we're going to have inflation issues and this should be top of mind. And and here we are. We just started hiking. What beginning of this year? Like the first hike was like six months ago or something like that. Like. We were at zero percent. Let's let's take a step back. We were at zero percent interest rates essentially for like a whole decade, like all throughout from 2009 to basically 2020. We were at. I mean, yeah, we we tried to hike back in like in 2018. The market called their bluff and they stopped hiking. So like, we were so low. We created so much artificial demand. I mean, it wasn't art. It, it created so much demand and liquidity in the economy for 10 or 12 years straight. Then the pandemic happened and we did the same exact thing on steroids. You know, we printed tons of money, provided even more liquidity. The balance sheet of the Fed went from like three trillion to nine trillion, right? So after knowing all of that and still not doing anything about inflation a year ago, really irritated me. And that's that's what I want to hit on first. Now, since we're paying for the repercussions and we can't go back in time, we can't, you know, love to change the past, but we can't change, we can't change the past. So now we really gotta look forward. I think the Federal Reserve is still behind the eight ball. I still think they aren't hiking aggressive enough. I still think they need to go to four and a half or so percent on the Fed funds rate, which is higher than a lot of people think. A lot of people think it's going to go and a lot of people think it should go. Um, I don't care if inflation's at 8%, 9%, 10%. I don't care if it's at 5%, really. We need to get this down to 3%, even 2% back to where close to where it was. Because if we don't, middle America is going to hurt for a decade straight. And if it hurts for a decade straight, we talked about how people are already struggling to save money, how people's retirement might be pushed back and people may never be able to retire. Think about this goes on longer than it should, you know, five years, 10 years, whatever it is, people really will not be able to retire. Middle America will, will just be hurting for, for a very, very long time. So, you know, we've basically created a huge wealth gap the past couple of years the biggest wealth gap we've ever seen. The rich got richer, uh, the middle class and the poor got poorer. Uh, essentially, the middle class is becoming more and more divided every single day. Um, if we hike interest rates, yeah, we we make it cost of borrowing a lot more expensive for middle class America. Uh, mortgages go up, you know, credit card, you know, you know, rates go up, even though they're extremely high already. Uh, everything goes up cost of borrowing wise. But middle America basically has a mortgage. That's, that's all, mortgage and credit cards are all middle-class America usually borrow on. So if we can make the cost of borrowing more expensive um, overall while taming inflation as quickly as possible, I think that is the long-term solution that we need to approach. But the Fed's not approaching it that way. Do you think that the, the way the Fed moves is more based on, and I'm, I'm not going to get political on anything, but more based on kind of their own thoughts and practices or um, based on what they were they were studying and kind of where their where their history comes from uh, and how does that impact what, what we have to deal with because ultimately we're the ones who have to deal with the fallout of that right uh, so. and that's a constant struggle I go through doing what I do I have to position client portfolios on what I think is actually going to happen not what I think should happen right so that's I talk about on TV sometimes what I think is going to happen. I talk about what I should have, what should happen. That's the fine line you always have to draw in this kind of job. Right. So that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I, I do think that everybody, I don't care who you are. Nobody has no personal agenda. You got to look at um, 
the people in power when it comes to especially politics, when it comes to these Federal Reserve chairs, people, all these kind of you know big positions that are powerful, right? What are the personality traits of most of these people? That's what it comes down to. You know, what are, wh- who are the people getting into power? All of them preach how they're in it, you know, to help everybody else. And they're, you know, the smart, the smartest of the bunch. And they, they, they're trying to do the best thing for America. But when they truly get in there, when, they, when you really take a look at what they're doing, the reason they're saying what they're saying is to push their own personal agenda. So when it comes to the Fed, absolutely, Powell wanted to keep um, power and being the chair of the Federal Reserve. He was worried that Biden was going to get rid of him because Biden could have nominated somebody else other than Powell. So when you have the decision of slowing the economy um, and not getting reelected or keeping the economy strong, even though it's not in the best interest of America because of inflation and to get reelected, of course, you're going to choose to keep it going a little bit longer uh, and get reelected by Joe Biden. Right. I mean, there's definitely this personal agendas. And that's the problem I have with the system in a lot of ways today. And the government's gotten really big for its bridges, more involved than it ever should have. Federal Reserve, I mean, most people think the Fed's been around since America was created. What, the Fed's been around 100 years? Like, <laughs> I'm just saying, like, the system isn't perfect. Is capitalism, is America's system one of the best in the world? I think so. Do we have a lot of work to do? And have we gotten away from what we actually uh, should have, uh, we actually wanted to be as a country back 300 years ago? I think we've gotten very, very, uh, far away from that, uh, what, what we wanted America to be. And we are really, um, you know, politicians, Federal Reserve, all these uh, people in power right now are really screwing things up, being too involved. So I'd like to see the government pull back a lot once we get things. So, and, and they didn't do that recently. Uh, it was just in the news that politics is making policy now because you've got the Biden administration coming back out saying, hey, we're going to forgive some more student loan debt. And I think before it was um, technical institutes that, that they forgave some debt and now they're coming back. It was in the news today, yesterday that, that they're going to do some more. What are your thoughts on that? I know what your thoughts are, but please tell our audience <laughs> what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, um, it's complicated. Uh, my, my thoughts are, you know, pretty obvious that and no loan should be forgiven, um, essentially, unless you're something, you know, crazy happens or there's some, you know, very, very small scenario that I would believe that loans should be forgiven. You're taking on the debt. But that being said, children, especially 18-year-olds, 17-year-olds, people going to college, don't understand if you're not raised the proper way of understanding how money works or at least interested in money like I was. I was raised properly. I'm very thankful. I had a great parents that raised me, you know, with, with great values. I also was very interested, like I talked about with money at 13 years old. A lot of people don't have either one of those at 17 or 18 years old. So college in general, we have an issue where it's pushed upon everybody. Now you have to go to college. It doesn't matter what price you pay. As long as you get a degree, you're going to be perfect in final life. That mentality is completely false and wrong. Um, you know, what I think is going to happen is kind of off topic. What I think is going to happen is uh, blue collar jobs, actually, um, the trades, electricians, plumbers. I think they're going to make a ton more money about 10 years from now. You're going to see them making a ton more money than a lot of white collar jobs. So I think that's going to be a huge shift we're going to see very, very soon. Um, but yeah, I mean, looking back, if you took out a loan, I, I think that, you know, 
you have to repay that debt. There's no logical way I can reason to not pay that debt, especially when you're taking money away from somewhere else. You're actually going to stimulate, especially now in the next 10 years, you're stimulating the economy even more by doing that. Yeah, if you get rid of debt, look, inflation's not coming down. You're going to pay for it through other means. You're going to pay for it through your taxes, through inflation. So it doesn't make sense economically. I just wish that there was a change in the school system and the way we approach college and the cost of college. I, I We're seeing a lot of schools pop up that doesn't charge you anything to go to school. But once you come out of school, the first like five or 10 years, you give like 10% of your income back to the college. I think that structure makes a lot more sense because budgeting is a lot easier than taking out loans. Budgeting, uh, paying, you know, budgeting coming out of your pocket is a lot easier than trying to figure out how much in loans you're going to pay, how you're going to pay it back. That's a much simpler way for America. And I, I think we need, we, need, we need to go to that. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I wonder if the administration is trying to buy some votes. <laughs> That's all they're trying to do. But I think they're they're in such a bad spot. I don't think there's any help in it at this point. <laughs> I really don't. Um, but th- that being said, anytime you give out free money, it's it's to buy votes. I mean. There's, there's no way of getting around that. It's That's one of the reasons why we've gotten so big uh, with the government intervention. I call it sugar. I think, Barrick, you probably heard me call it. Once you give out sugar, you can't take the sugar away. Uh, people start to expect sugar. So the only way to stay in power is to keep giving sugar. And that's what people want. Uh, even though they don't, it's not the best for them, uh, you can't convince a lot of people otherwise. And that's just the sad truth of it. Yeah, that's 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 a good statement. And um, I mean, I guess you can take the sugar away by hiring 87,000 people to take away the sugar. Uh, but yeah, that's, yeah, that's kind right. of a thing. Uh, and arming them with guns and breaking <laughs> into your house. Exactly. That's That doesn't make a lot of sense. But uh, I did have something. You were talking about how you said blue collar and trade jobs are, are going to move forward. And it's interesting because it came to my mind something my son said. He's 17, going to be a senior in high school this year. Uh, he also has been investing since he was 14 uh, and has done well saving. You know, he saves very Love well. Yeah, he's he's always he's always been about money uh, since he was like four. Uh, so, uh, but he's also he's got me beat, dude. He's way ahead of me. Well, I mean, you know, he just he was always interested in it. But the interesting thing he said is, you know, Dad, I don't really want to go to college. Uh, he said, but what's interesting is that I will be perceived as lazy and uneducated when I could go to college for four years and drink and party and get a degree that doesn't really qualify me to be an expert at anything. Uh, but everybody else thinks I'm responsible and everybody thinks that I am doing exactly what a good young man does. And I said, well, let's take it this perspective because he wants to start his own business. I said, so look at your business that you're wanting to start and let's look at it as a four-year plan. And then by the time, if you execute well, four years in, you're able to sell that business when your friends are graduating and getting their first job. I said, so let's take it in that perspective. So what do you tell people when, you know, they look at you, you went to college, you're super successful, you're on TV all the time, but they're like, Hey, my son wants to do a trade or my daughter wants to do a trade. What is the voice and and the storyline that needs to be given to, to people, uh, to young people that, Hey, it's okay. Uh, and so where they aren't thinking like my son, hey, I, am I a failure for wanting to start my own business or to, to be an entrepreneur at a young age? Uh, what, what is your story that you share with people? Uh, first off, 
you'll never truly be happy in life if you don't, if you care what other people think all the time. Um, that's one thing just over the past couple of years, I've started to really notice more and more. Um, yesterday after Cavuto, I got a, someone commented on my post on Facebook. They found me on Facebook and they commented on me, and my girlfriend's picture about how I'm an idiot. Am I even okay? Am I basically, um, you know, am I, uh, you know, he, he, they went down so many different like derogatory things to me. It was insane. So, you know, once you start to really tune out people, that's when you can truly be happy with yourself and know, understand your purpose and why you're doing what you do. Um, that's key. Number one, number two is so many people, most people, and the reason why, uh, one of the things that separates, um, you know, business owners, investors, good investors from, um, others is their strength of foresight, right? Being able to see somewhere into the future where things are heading five, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, being able to kind of see the trends and what's going on. So not caring what people think now and understanding being confident enough and what most likely is going to come in the future um, and placing your bet on that pays out a lot more than being short-term minded and trying to go run with society with where things are now. Um, take a look at computers where they were, if you could envision computers and where they were heading to today's age back 20 years ago, where would you be right? Bitcoin, you know, cryptocurrency 13 years ago, kind of head into the environment we're heading into now. If you could have saw that back then you would have been rewarded bigly. Um, you might not see that extreme, you know, billion dollar gains, um, with the trades, but if you can see that, you know, basic supply demand and understand, um, how that works and that there's no supply of any trade out there because everyone's going to college. Everyone's trying to get every, whatever degrees they're even making nowadays. Um, and then there's, uh, no, there's just strong, huge, strong demand for, um, the trades because, you know, I'll tell you, I'm not very good with my hands. Most people nowadays, they are so on the computers and they were never really grown up to be good with their hands. Um, there's a strong need for all these different trades. And if you can get into that and see that that's coming in the next 10 years, you're going to be rewarded very bigly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, when you were talking about kind of seeing what's coming, you've, you've got a, a very interesting dichotomy in that because you've got, you're going to need trades, but you've got robotics coming in at an even higher, higher uh, rate and more AI. And then you've got crypto and you've got this, the, the metaverse and what that's going to look like to e-commerce. When you have somebody comes in and let's say they've got a half million dollars to invest, but their first question is, what crypto should I buy? Uh, and, and, and what NFT project should I get? Should I buy a board ape or something like that? I mean, because I know that happens. I know people ask that because people are spending 180000 on board apes every day and uh, $100,000 on a, a where my vans go uh, from Drifter Shoots and all these things on the daily. And so I know that those questions come in, but, you know, what do you tell them? If I got somebody coming in saying, Luke, I got half a million dollars. I, I only want to invest in cryptocurrency and NFTs. I'd be like, well, I'm not the guy for you. I mean, it's just some, I, there's nothing wrong with understanding your place and how you invest and how you approach your strategy. Um, too many people try to just, you know, market to everybody and be all niches. The more niche you get, the better off you are in life and everything, the way um, you approach maybe your business, um, the way you even approach your thoughts, knowing what you're good at and what you're not good at. Like that's, that's what you should focus on. That's how you're going to generate the most ROI 
um, in your life is understand what you're good at and what you're not good at, right? So I know I'm not going on the NFT market every day searching for NFTs. I'm not going to be the best investor for that. I, I understand supply and demand, how that works. I can comment on the NFT market, but I'm not going to be able to decide necessarily how much you should invest, um, where you should invest in the NFT space. Um, my general thoughts would be to buy the top dogs and top dogs. It'd probably be like cryptocurrency too. Both of them top dogs will survive. The bottom 99% will not survive and aren't not good to invest in, but I'm not going to be the one to recommend that. I recommend usually people in general, you know, 1% of your portfolio makes sense for a lot of this stuff. Cryptocurrency, maybe up to five or 10% if you're younger, uh, cryptocurrency and NFTs. The other 99%, or 90%, uh, out of the five hundred thousand dollars you want to invest, I can invest the other four hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. You know, uh, you know, four hundred thousand dollars for you. You can go ahead and do have fun with a hundred thousand dollars. So you gotta know what you're good at. Like you got, I'm good at equities, equity markets. Um, that's what my team is really, really. I mean, my team's good at diversifying the different asset classes, and we uh, specialize in uh, domestic equities, uh, managing the portfolios there. That's what we're good at. That's our niche. Nice, nice, and and I think that's good. Like because most people want to have business and they want to take your business and they're not honest enough to tell you that. And so that, that speaks a lot for you guys and, and what y'all do. John, I know you've got a question uh, that you're, that you're waiting to ask here. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, Luke, over the last 20 years uh, enrolling worksite benefits, I can't tell you how many people, and I, I don't mean rank and file, I'm talking doctors, lawyers, uh, rocket scientists. One of my favorite group is down at Kennedy uh, Space Center that don't have financial advisors. You know, they don't have anybody they go to that they trust. A lot of them are trying to do it on their own. So where is the sweet spot? And, and I guess this is global, not just for you guys, as, as far as, you know, where's that low hanging fruit. But if I'm, if I'm between, you know, zero and 250, or if I'm 250, 500, 500 and above, when do I stop trying to do it on my own? Cause I know there are a lot of guys in the audience who may think I, I don't have the half million or million or 5 million or whatever to go out and invest. When do when should people call the professional? That's a great question. Um, the hardest part for most people, from what I've seen, is accumulating the wealth in the first place. I mean, that's the hardest part, right? Um, when you the hard, there's two reasons to that. One, uh, being able to save the money, um, having the income capable, and spending the difference between the income and spending to be able to save the money. And the number two is how they're investing it. You know, a lot of people are getting themselves into trouble right now. Like the meme stocks, I just commented on BBBY today, Bed Bath & Beyond, the meme stock frenzy. Like, yeah, you can make a lot of money, but you can also lose a lot of money really quick. So I know a lot of, I know a lot of people that have lost $50,000, $100,000 um, investing in some of these meme stocks. That's when they call in, they're like, I lost, you know, $300,000, $400,000 in this trading my own. And now I'm down from 1 million down to 500,000. I need someone to help me out. So like, I've seen that happen too. So you have both sides. One, you need to accumulate it with the income. Two, you need to be able to grow it or at least maintain it and not lose it, right? Um, that being said, having just a general understanding of how our tax system, how our system's kind of set up right now, it wants you to kind of succeed. It does. The 401ks, you know, IRAs, retirement savings, tax deferral plans, um, contributing small amounts of money to that over time, investing that in just a simple indexes, that's going to be the best option for most people until you really get upwards closer to retirement upwards of a, you know, half a million dollars, a million dollars. You know, that's probably the most efficient way of going about it um, uh, at first. 
once you reach that point, once you're approaching retirement, I think every everybody should have a financial advisor in retirement or while they're approaching retirement, you know, first couple, you know, maybe a year or two before retirement. I think everybody should have a financial advisor then just because there's so many strategic moves that can be made that most people are not aware of or don't want to put the time and effort into learning or, um, you know, don't want to even uh, think about because it can get complicated and tax code changes all the time. So I think there's everyone at that point should at least talk to somebody to understand what's out there, what kind of strategies they can make. Maybe it's not a full-time advisor, but someone there that's able to give them some recommendations. I think everyone should do that. Um, but really the key is, is to understand how much you know and what you don't know. And the sad part is most people just don't know what they don't know. And that's the scariest of them all. Um, you know what you know, you know what you don't know, but you know the things that you don't know that you don't know, all the tax code out there, all the strategies out there, that's the scariest of one of them all. So one, once I think once you have a gut feeling, it, and sometimes it comes down to this, once you have a gut feeling, or once you have a feeling that you are over, you know, you're managing more money than you should, uh, once you're, um, you're, uh, you're, you know, making big life decisions in life, that's when you should maybe think about at least calling somebody up and talking with them. Well, and not only that, you've got a big transfer of wealth right now, right? You've got the boomers who are on their way out that have the majority of the assets right now, and that's being transferred. So what do you say to someone who, you know, comes to you and says, Hey, I just, you know, got the farm or whatever. Um, what do, what do I do with it? And I know a lot of that has to do with their philosophy and their risk tolerance. And I'm sure you have an intake evaluation that you go through to determine, but you know, for the folks out there that can't call Luke Lloyd, uh, and, and, uh, take them on as a client, what do you recommend? That's a great question. Um, so I recommend that anytime, again, this is a big life event. So my recommendation would be to talk to at least somebody when they have a big life event happen, someone dies, you come into inheritance, like that's, that's important, but most people won't do that. So they will try to go out and try to do it themselves. Um, sometimes the biggest way of learning is, is to have a wake up call a lot of times. And I hate to say that uh, the key is to try to prevent that as much as possible. You going in investing yourself, losing money, like that's the key to invest in. But that being said, it's not like every advisor out there, um, you know, isn't going to make you money all the time. The market's down 20%. You're most likely not going to be up. Right. So it's just like, you have to understand that an advisor isn't there to get you rich. That's a big misconception people have about advisors in the financial sector. They think you can give you half a million bucks. You're going to turn it into three, $4 million. Um, and people just don't understand the risk of doing that. If you're going to try to grow that quickly, that much, like you're going to have to take on a lot of risk to do that. Right. And that might not always pay off. Um, so financial advisors aren't miracle workers. We're just strategists that understand how the economy works and what the best asset allocation and what holdings are the best at that time and being strategic with it all the time. Right. I always use this example. If I have, I actually do have, I had some uh, water come in my basement, uh, uh, what last weekend, the first time I had to deal with anything like water in the basement, the floor is a little wet, had little cracks in the wood, uh, the floor mold, um, so uh, that, that wasn't cool. I'm not doing it myself. I'm calling somebody up to go fix that for me, right? Because that's their full-time job. I you know, analyze the markets all the time. I read 40 pages of research all the time. Our team, we have five CFAs managing the portfolios. That's all they do. We have CFPs building the financial plans. That's all they do. This is our full-time job, right? To make sure that we are protected on the downside while trying to maximize on the upside, right? Um, so I think a lot of people need to approach it that way. And then on the other side, you got to be very careful with who you choose if you do find a financial advisor. 
Um, you want to make sure you go with a fiduciary. You want to make sure that you go with an actual financial advisor, not a broker. Um, there's a lot of sleazy people in this industry. And that's what gives advisors, uh, asset managers in general, wealth managers in general, uh, bad rep. Uh, someone's always trying to sell you something. That's not cool. Uh, most of our clients, um, we you know think, think very similarly in regards to our beliefs, our views, uh, what we think is happening in the current world, current environment, you know, politically, we kind of usually align usually as well. Um, you know, we're not just, um, you know, here, you know, we're not just managing your money, trying to make, to, to make us money, right? We do better when you do better. And we also view our clients as, you know, kind of our, you know, a lot of them are friends. Like they really are. Like they're, they're people we, we conversate with. Uh, we have client events all the time. That's how you got to approach it. You know, a lot of people are trying to sell you a mutual fund, sell you a product. You know, you got to find an RAA, someone there that's actually not going to put you in a product that's doing it themselves. Um, that's actually doing it in-house and not trying to just collect a commission. And you kind of said the magic word there, and I want you to explain it to the audience. What's the difference between a broker or even a financial advisor and a fiduciary? Yeah. So a fiduciary means they legally have to do uh, uh, what's um, in your best interest all the time, legally. Um, they can go to jail if they do not. Um, broker dealers, which is what you typically have heard of when it comes to finance, you know, brokers, or when you hear financial advisors in the news, they're all brokers usually. Um, they're uh, on the suitability standard, meaning they uh, just have to make sure that's suitable for you. And suitable is a very, very lenient term, right? So um, I don't know about you guys. I want something that's always legally going to be, or at least thought of in the best interest of my heart. Um, legally, uh, not necessarily just suitable for me because it can be a lot of different things, right? So that's the big difference. Uh, brokers collecting commissions, selling you stocks, um, selling you mutual funds, products, whatever it be. Uh, what we do is we charge you a flat fee uh, every single year. And when your assets go up, we make more money. If your assets go down, we make less money. So we're incentivized to do the best thing for you all the time. So I like that business model. That's how every business should be um, mutual, uh, right? You're doing something good for somebody else. You're getting something in return. That's how it should be. Sadly, a lot of businesses out there are not mutually beneficial. Um, those are the businesses you want to stay away from. So um, definitely stay away from the unethical broker side. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. That's a lot of good information, uh, especially for guys who are just starting to hear and just thinking about, okay, I need a, I needed some financial advice and what I'm doing. And it's uh, interesting. I've got a group of men that I interact with on, on a daily basis. And I said, Hey, we've got this, this gentleman coming on today. He's uh, not just financial advisor. Like this guy knows this stuff really well. And, and they shot me some questions. And, and so if, if I really? could, That's awesome. these, yeah, they were all over it. So uh, one guy's an Aussie. Uh, and so their retirement structure is a little bit different, but he said, what's a pitfall to retirement that nobody expects? Who like that you see? And I, I would never would have thought of that question, but I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to share that. And that was Daniel, Daniel Sharp. So thanks Daniel for that question. It's a great question. I got to think a little bit on that one. Um, I mean, number one, the first thing I can think of is no one expected the COVID thing to happen, you know, let's go through the pandemic and then inflation to happen as much as it did and so quickly. Um, you know, these are, I, I will focus, I guess, on inflation because these are on times we haven't seen in really, you know, 40 years, right? So no, most, you know, two generations, three generations almost, went through retire or in, are in retirement and went through retirement without seeing these crazy inflation amounts. Right. Um, so inflation right now is one of the biggest things that's hit, impacting everybody that's in retirement because at 
can you get 10% rate of return on your portfolio? Most likely not. So I think a lot of people aren't planning around how much money they're actually going to need in retirement over the next 10 or 20 years. So a lot of those, if you have a financial plan built, if you've talked with somebody, if you've done the numbers yourself, maybe on an Excel spreadsheet of how much income you need with retirement between social security, retirement accounts, whatever kind of pensions you might have, whatever income you have coming in, you might need to change the expectations now. So I, I would definitely take a look at inflation. That's the easiest one. I know I'm not being too sophisticated there, but I mean, I don't think enough people are paying attention to that as they're approaching retirement. And even if you're young, you got to adjust for it. Yeah, I think that's that's a great answer because average American family spending $700 more a month. So if you look at, okay, my retirement, I've got it set up. I can get seven or $8,000 a month. Well, you know, you just increase that by 15%. And, and how are you going to make up for that gap? So that's a, that's a great answer to that one. Real quick, um, just another thing I could kind of quickly thought of, there's so many tax strategies out there, Roth conversions, um, opportunity zones like real estate that you get, you get a charitable deduction on with your taxes. A lot of people come into a lot of money at certain times in their life, whether it's inheritance, whether it's um, you know some sort of uh, you get a big check because you have so many sick days. You get paid out hundred grand because you have so many sick days from your job when you retire. Like there's so many ways people come into to large amounts of money. But the key thing is the biggest hindrance to wealth, and people don't realize this till they're in retirement, um, is taxes. When you get that large paycheck and how much is withheld? When you get a bonus check and you're expecting twenty grand, you get ten grand instead. Where did that money go? Taxes slow the rate of wealth uh, building so much um, over time. So the key is to lower taxes as much as possible. There's a lot of ways to do that in the tax code, real estate, charitable donations to opportunity zones in real estate. You know, I've, I've had clients where we put, you know, $300,000 into a uh, opportunity zone with a real estate property and they get a $600,000 tax deduction that saves them so much of money. Their money still grows. Uh, that $300,000 still grows over a five-year time period. They can liquidate after five years um, and they get that huge tax deduction. So taxes, also a thing that most people don't pay attention to until it's too late. Yeah, I think that's that's really good because most people, until they make a certain amount of money, have no clue of tax of tax deductions or tax breaks or even even look into that. And, and it's it's kind of free money just waiting there because uh, every dollar you deduct, you're saving you know, 52 to 52 cents. If you're, and that's, if you're in the top bracket, right? Uh, so you're, you're, you're saving yourself a lot of money. Um, one, one question, another question from James, our guy, James Pennington here says, um, assuming that your tax bracket will be lower in your retirement years, is that a good assumption or a bad assumption? And how, how can you prepare for that? I highly doubt it's going to be lower in your retirement. Oh, well, I mean, it's good. Your tax bracket will be lower. Mm-hmm. Tax code most likely will be higher because of well, the repercussions of what we've done over the past couple of years. So you might expect to make lower amounts of money, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're paying less taxes uh, if you're especially if you're retiring 10, 20 years down the road or even five years down the road, right? That I want to hit on that first. Number two, there's a lot of strategies you can utilize if you know your income is going to be lower. You want to drive money up the tax efficiency ladder, we call it, as possible. Uh, you have your taxable accounts, your checking savings accounts, your traditional, uh, your brokerage accounts. Maybe you have a TD Ameritrade, something like that. You have your tax deferred accounts, which are like 
your IRAs, 401ks, um, those types of accounts. And then you have your tax-free accounts. You want to drive as much money up that ladder as possible. So when you're in uh, lower tax brackets in retirement, maybe you don't have as much money coming in. You may be just collecting Social Security, something like that. Um, you then can be strategic with how much money you're taking from the qualified, your IRAs, up to your tax-free ladder and get taxed on that smaller uh, percentage um, on the tax bracket. Right now, like you know, a lot of people... You're just collecting Social Security, then that 12% tax bracket, which is like extremely low um, for America you know, here in America. So if you're at that 12% tax bracket, you might have $30,000, $40,000 of leeway that you can convert IRA money to tax-free money in the Roth IRA. Uh, $40,000 converted, yeah, you're paying 12% tax on that $40,000. You don't want to convert more than that you know, 40,000 to get more than 12% tax bracket. You want to stay under that, you know, in the 12% area, but it makes a lot of sense um, to do those conversions, especially as taxes most likely are going to rise over time to try to pay taxes now rather than pay taxes higher down the road. Right. The the other key is, um, you know, especially when it comes to investing financial sectors, Anyone that says they're, I mean, yeah, you're, you're perceived when you go on TV and you're on the articles, whatever it be, you're perceived as the expert, right? Yeah, you are the expert in the industry technically, right? But everybody out there that says they know exactly what's going to happen, they are, they've already mastered the markets, they're completely full of BS, right? You're always a student of the markets in this, in this field. You're, you get humbled very quickly. And that's why at the beginning we talked about consistency and discipline, because once you don't have one of those, you don't have consistency or discipline, you get smacked in the face and you get humbled very, very quickly. So you're always a student of the market, whatever fields, you know, your the viewers are in, the listeners are in, like you're always a student of that field. You're always learning. You're always adapting. That's how you should approach things. Anyone that says otherwise is full of BS um, and you shouldn't probably work with them. Since we have a guy on the line who's got degrees in economics, uh, math, and business management, I'm going to ask you a macro question. Um, What are your thoughts on the supply chain issues we've had? Uh, Where do you see it going? And uh, because, I mean, we're we're consumers as well. We're not just investors. We're consumers, and we're seeing what's happening. I'm really curious to get your take on that. Well, I think the... We'll actually have the opposite of supply chain issues probably over the next year or two with demand following so much. So I think it's going to correct and even more. So we already saw that with Target earnings, um, having so much inventory, they're actually going to having to lower prices to even sell some products. Um, that's in the short term. I have another take too with it. I, I think we're very um, not, we as a society here in America, we are not, um, having enough eyes on what's happening with China and Taiwan. I am very, very concerned with the semiconductor space in the supply chain, um, maybe in 2023, maybe end of 2022. Um, heck, it could be tomorrow. Who knows? Um, I think China most likely is going to take go to Taiwan, stomp, stampede in there and claim the territory. It basically is their territory. Um, they just basically need to go in there and say, okay, you really are our territory and we have control over you guys. And if they really wanted to screw up every economy in the world, all they need to do is funnel all their semiconductors to China themselves and not allow anybody else to have semiconductors. 50% of uh, semiconductors that are in everything, TVs, smartphones, essentially any electronic out there, uh, 50% of those are made in Taiwan. Um, If they were to do that, we would see supply chain issues probably for five years straight. I don't care if you pass the CHIPS Act, if you pump hundreds of billions of dollars that Biden's trying to do. 
um, into the economy to try to ramp up uh, chip production here in the U.S. There's no way you can go from like 20%, uh, 15% production to 50% in two, three years. There's no way to, to, to do that at all. So, um, you know, I think it's really important for us to, to uh, start to really rethink our um, national security when it comes to resources, uh, not only semiconductors, oil too. Um, we're so reliant on other countries' oil um, that's necessary for the current uh, environment and the current world. So uh, we need to really get strategic with these moves. If we don't, we could be in a very, very bad place. So not not too concerned in the short term. It's probably going to fix itself. But once uh, China and Taiwan hit it, hit it out, um, it's not going to be fun. Man, you bring up such a, an incredible point. And I don't want to open a can of worms here, and we've got five minutes left. But you know, Varric and I were talking offline about the um, potential of a BRIC uh, reserve currency and what that might do to the dollar. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be conspiratorial, but what are your thoughts? That's a great question. Uh, is to- there's like 30 different paths I can go here, right? Um, yeah. I, I think that most likely the U.S. dollar will remain dominant for the foreseeable future. I don't see us going off of the U.S. dollar, going to some even cryptocurrency. I don't see necessarily Bitcoin being the dominant. I, I don't see gold bars being exchanged anytime soon. Um, if anything, it would be digital, in my opinion. I think it would be gold-backed. Maybe we go back to the gold-backed system, but it still would be digital. You wouldn't be having gold bars in your house, you wouldn't be exchanging it. My girlfriend's mother actually asked me about that. She's been, you know, kind of on that side of things, like conspiracy wise, load up on gold. We're going to be bartering here soon. I'm like, okay, if that's the case, it's better to load up on guns and ammunition instead of gold bars at that point. (laughs) Um, Because there's only so much you can protect, like you can maybe fend off five, 10 other people. You can't fend off 50 people trying to storm your house, take your gold. Um, So I, most likely, as long as the world isn't coming to an end, I think everything's going to be digitalized. I don't know if that's a cryptocurrency, if it's going to be a virtual U.S. dollar, crypto, like a, a digitized uh, a U.S. dollar um, that's um, backed by something, if it's a, you know, a gold backed by digital currency. I don't know what that is, but most likely, I don't have any change of opinion that the U.S. dollar is not going to be the world reserve anytime soon unless the bad things happen. And I don't want to even get into what those bad things look like. No, that's, that's fair uh, enough. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a good answer uh, to a to a big question. And uh, John, that's a great question. And and wow, I mean, the implications of of something like that and and what is coming are are, are huge, and what potentially could come are huge. Uh, and I know that this is coming uh, to to an end as well. You've got somewhere to be, and and we've had an amazing uh, past 50, 52, 53 minutes with you. And I just want to thank you for being here, but I also want to kind of end on a little bit of a light note. You're, you're there in Cleveland and fall comes early and winter stays long. So uh, you guys have sporting events and all that type of stuff going on. What, you know, I'm, I'm in Florida, John's in, in Alabama. I know, rub it in, rub it in. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, we're, we're up, uh, Florida's open for business all the time. As, uh, I know, I'm like, it's coming yeah. down there, dude. Like Cleveland, you get three good months out of the year. The other nine stink. So that's my question. So what do you do? Like, like in, in Cleveland, once, once it get once the snow starts coming, uh, and there's only so much football you can you can go watch and basketball. Like, what is it the the typical Clevelander winter time for fun? Eat food and get fat. 
<laughs> and drink some beer. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, it's, it's not fun. I mean, we, we kind of make our own fun. Uh, you know, I think it's important to take a vacation in the winter time, especially when you're from up here, right down South, down out West. Um, everyone kind of looks forward to that obviously, but that's getting out of the area. Right. But yeah, it's, it's all football, dude. It's football season in the winter time. That's our fun. It's going to the bars, hanging out with your friends, uh, cheering on your football team. That's what it is up here. We're diehard football fans. As you know, I I'm a Steelers fan. Everyone up here is Cleveland, obviously Browns. Um, both, I think, uh, seasons are going to be pretty rough going forward, uh, Steelers and Browns, which is something I haven't said my entire life uh, until really last year. Um, so I'm not looking forward to, to taking a beating sometimes. I don't think in some of these games with the Steelers and then Browns probably too, who knows what the hell is going on there. But, uh, yeah, dude, it's all about eat, get, eating good food and drinking some good beer. Well, you know, it's it's rare for the Steelers to have an off year or even a couple of off years. Uh, and I've offered this to you before. There's there's always a Mahomes or a Kelsey jersey uh, that's available uh, if if you if you need a team to hold on to for the year from uh, from my KC my Chiefs or um, or you know even Tampa Bay. You know, down, down here in Florida, they they got a pretty good quarterback still. Uh, but uh, but there's options that you have. I, I did have one last thing. Uh, I've visited Pittsburgh a fair amount and we would go during December yep. and there would be a hundred people in line getting ice cream. Like that's one thing I never understood yeah. is, is the obsession with cold things in a place that's freezing. And and maybe you can explain that to me. I understand. Permitting. I wish I, I really wish I could. <laughs> I'm, I'm too young probably to be saying this, but I want to go down South or out West as soon as possible. I hate the cold. My bones already hurt. Like, you know, I've talked to you before, Varric. You know, I don't know if anyone that here that listens knows, but Varric's very good with uh, you know, some of the oil stuff. He sent me some things that really helped me out with some of my, um, you know, throat and, and all the bad things happen in my body. But it gets even worse in the wintertime. So I can't wait to move out of here. So I don't get it either. Everyone's kind of like, you know, I don't want to say we're trying to find something an, an out up here in the wintertime because everyone kind of just is a little more seasonally depressed up here because it is wintertime. It's cold. Everyone's inside more, but I do, you do see it, you know, bulking season. A lot of people eat a lot of food. They are drinking probably some more beer during the wintertime uh, ice cream. It's their sugar rush, right? It's a, it's a way to, to escape a little bit because it's how bad the cold is up here. So I, I can see that being probably a reason, but everyone has their kind of, you know, way of going about that the cold season, I guess. I've I've got a question uh, before you go. Electric or acoustic? I'm an electric guitar man. I I uh, big Van Halen, ACDC, Def Leppard, Motley Crue. Like yeah, I saw them in concert a couple weeks back. Motley Crue and Def Leppard. They killed it. Um, a huge uh, electric guitar guy. Uh, I got four hanging downstairs in my basement. Um, I, you know, I try to play as much as I can now. But yeah, look, you know, I, I don't know if there's any videos out there, but I can shred pretty good. Not not not. I'm not saying I'm up there with any of these musicians, but I, I, I've, I took lessons at eight years old and took them for about seven years. So uh, I, I love to play. I'm looking for those. Uh, <laughs> after we get off this call, that's the first thing I'm going to. <laughs> there we go. I think I got, got a couple on Twitter and if anyone wants to follow me on Twitter, that's how me and Varric actually connected is through Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Lloyd boy, Luke. So uh, I appreciate, you know, you guys having me on. I really do. Uh, it's been a great discussion. Anytime you guys need somebody more than happy to do it. Thank you so Thank much. You so much. For joining us, Luke. Uh, appreciate your time, and looks like we got out just in time. So, hope you have a great afternoon and great rest of the week and weekend. John, 
thank you so much uh, for for everything you do to help prepare this and, and make this podcast happen on the regular. And thank you everyone else for joining uh, Mr. Fitz podcast. We hope you enjoyed this and hope that you'll give us the feedback that we need to make this better every single time. Take care. <laughs>